March 29, 1987. The Pontiac Silverdome. WrestleMania 3. That night, that event was a benchmark moment. It was the culmination of a new vision for what pro wrestling could be and what pro wrestling storytelling could do. But before the irresistible force met the immovable object, before the tremors of Hulkamania sent shockwaves from coast to coast, two men, Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat, fighting for one belt, the Intercontinental title, stole the show. Complete mental insanity. Oh, yeah. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, your future seems bleak. Oh, yeah, it does. But you got involved over your head, didn't you? The Macho Man Randy Savage, number one wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation. Take your wife's advice. Retire. This is going to be the year of the dragon. And Randy Savage, if you think for one moment, one split second, that you're going to be taking all this away from me, you are sadly mistaken. You are wrong. Macho Man Randy Savage, high in the air, the dragon Ricky Steamboat, don't you know that he ain't around no more? Randy Savage, the day has finally come, the minutes, the seconds, we have reached our moment. As you and I climb into the ring, we clash like two titans, but there will only be one winner. The largest audience in the world, not only pin you with the one, two, three count, but I'm gonna put you out of wrestling for good. Oh, yeah, Dragon. I am the Lord and Master of the Ring. And you're gonna find that out. Oh, history beckons the Macho Man. Pro wrestling has no fixed set of rules, no restrictive boundaries limiting how a story can be told or how a match plays out. That creative dexterity allows for the industry to evolve in real time. A most unique stage where the performers front and center can reinvent the very foundation of the business with a single performance. Talk about determination. Macho Man throwing everything but the kitchen sink and can't keep the dragon's shoulders down. I don't know how. I mean, he has given him three or four moves right now that were to beat any average man. This is beyond wrestling ability. This is guts personified right now. Macho Man trying to get to the outside to save himself. He's in a lot of trouble. The title is in a lot of trouble. I'll tell you now, it's the Macho Man with unbelievable how he's kicking out all these. What a battle. This is one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. Oh, package right in the middle. No, Macho Man out. But the champion still in control. No, small package by the dragon. This is the story of one man's madness and another man's resolve. This is the story of an iconic championship and the emotional connection forged by the men who wore it. This is a story of how one match on one night changed everything. Wrestling with Art presents A Dragon's Fire. This is the Wrestling With Art Podcast, and I am your host, Barry Hess. You can't do a podcast about the art of pro wrestling without talking about Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage from WrestleMania 3. So here we are, episode 5 of the show, and we're 
now at one of the pinnacle matches, certainly of the 1980s, but really one of the most important matches in all of wrestling history. Um, aside from just the great match at WrestleMania 3, we're going to get into uh, the backstory between the two. And we're also going to take a look, uh, a little bit of the history of the Intercontinental title. Uh, the Intercontinental title is one of the more iconic titles in wrestling. Uh, and this match actually went a long way in establishing that uh, love for the Intercontinental title. So I thought it would be uh, interesting to kind of look at how the title was established, kind of follow the early lineage of the title leading up to uh, Randy Savage becoming the Intercontinental Champion in 1986 and then kind of taking over the story from there. Uh, so I'm really excited about this episode. I'm really happy how it turned out. Um, so I hope I hope I hope we've done this match and this story justice because it is one of my favorite matches of all time. Uh, it's one of the uh, first matches that really hooked me on the uh, art of pro wrestling uh, more than just the actual uh, action of it all and the excitement, but the art of pro wrestling. Uh, it still does the same thing for me today when I watch it. I probably watch this match three or four times a year. Uh, I still love it just as much as the first time I saw it. Uh, I know a lot of people feel the same way. Uh, so I'm really excited about this this week's episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, just a reminder, uh, you can subscribe to the show uh, on all the different podcasting platforms. Uh, check us out on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at BFHess171. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Always looking for, for feedback and to start conversations with any listeners out there. Okay, so now that we have that out of the way, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode, A Dragon's Fire. The Intercontinental title was established in the fall of 1979, when the Worldwide Wrestling Federation unified its North American heavyweight title with its South American heavyweight title. A tournament in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, crowned Pat Patterson the inaugural champion. Patterson had been the North American champion prior to the tournament, which was completely kayfabe. So was the South American heavyweight championship for that matter. Little change for Patterson beyond the look and name of the lower card title he carried to the ring, but the importance of the rebranded title slowly increased as it was defended around the Northeastern Territory circuit. In December of 1980, former heavyweight champion Pedro Morales defeated Ken Patera to become the third champion a win that would make him the first Triple Crown winner in promotion history. The heft of Morales' main event past increased the value of the title by extension. So did the feuds that began to develop over the title. Morales and Don Morocco traded the title back and forth as part of a feud that lasted the better part of two years. When Morales regained the title in 1981, he remained champion for 424 days. The extended reign reinvigorated the former top star's career, and went a long way in establishing the title itself as an important prize. Morales finally dropped the title back to Morocco in January of 1983. It was during Morocco's second stint as champion that he and Jimmy Snuka feuded over the title. That feud produced one of the promotion's earliest iconic moments, Snuka splashing down onto Morocco from the top of a steel cage before a packed house inside Madison Square Garden. 
lost in that infamous imagery was the fact that Morocco, not Snuka, won the match to retain his title. As the creative around the Intercontinental title began to escalate, so too did its value. By 1984, the title was firmly established as the semi-main event. That year, another ethnic babyface enjoyed a long reign when Tito Santana dethroned Morocco. A blood feud between Santana and Greg the Hammer Valentine helped take the title to yet another level. In one of the more compelling feuds of the 1980s, the bitter rivals traded the title in a series of brutal matches, including Valentine's championship win on September 24, 1984. That was the first intercontinental title change shown on WWF television. The feud culminated the following year when Santana won the title back during an especially brutal cage match on July 6, 1985. After the match, Valentine was so incensed by the loss that the vindictive heel broke the title into pieces against the steel cage. This precipitated the creation of a new title belt, the multi-layered quadrilateral design that most fans associate with the title to this day. By 1986, the Intercontinental title completely redesigned the WWF's midcard. Before the title's rise to prominence, the main event level, which is to say the heavyweight title level, was where almost all of the promotion's creative emphasis was directed. Lower titles were thought of as more of a promoter's garnish than anything else, a shiny accoutrement to add a dynamic beyond the simple babyface and heel psychology. The Intercontinental title flipped the script on that format. The WWF's creative hierarchy was no longer quite so top-heavy, but a layered drama instead. The hierarchy still narrowed toward the top, but that added layer was enough of a distinction in 1986 to make the audience invest in the wrestlers and the stories outside of the heavyweight title scene more than they'd ever done before. The title had added meaningful years to Pedro Morales' career. It showcased popular stars like Tito Santana without risk of getting lost in Hulk Hogan's supreme shadow. And it provided an important stage for heels like Don Morocco and Greg Valentine to shine beyond the linear main event formula that would have quickly cashed in all their creative equity to feed Hulkamania. More than anything else, it etched a specific spot on the card for great matches. You didn't run to the bathroom or hit the concession stand during the Intercontinental title match. It was a high spot on the card. The main event provided the sizzle, the spectacle of Hulk Hogan running wild. The Intercontinental title match, that was the stake. As Vince McMahon put his foot on the gas of his bold national expansion, he acquired a slew of new talent from around the country, making the mid-card more important than ever. All that talent needed a place to incubate, two of those new stars would soon find themselves locked in a melodramatic feud that would raise the Intercontinental Championship to new heights and further redefine the valuable title's role within the promotion. Look at Santana, he's obsessed with getting that figure four leg Boy, lock he here. he wants it bad, he knows he can slap it on him now. Look at it, what's he doing now, Jess? Look at Savage going down into his tights. He's got something in his hand. He missed it, he missed with it. Oh, look at this. Oh, he didn't miss that time. He, he throws that right into Santana's face. We got a new champion. I can't believe it. We got a new Intercontinental Champion, Monsoon. Oh, he just threw it outside the ring, Jess. Whatever it was. He had something in his right hand. He threw it outside the ring. One of the cameramen's got it in his hand. I believe we have a, we have a new champion, I believe, Gorilla. Referee Danny Davis talking to our ring announcer. Possible history could have been made here. Let's go up and find out. 
You can just call him champ now, Gorilla. It was February in Massachusetts, and the temperature outside the Boston Garden was below freezing. But the heat inside the arena was almost unbearable. The foreign object, Randy Macho Man Savage, pulled from his trunks and spiked into Tito Santana's forehead, went undetected by the referee. Savage slithered away from the ring, clutching the newly won Intercontinental title to his chest, as the former champion struggled to regain his senses. Two weeks later, the rest of the country would watch what fans in Boston witnessed live when the match aired on an episode of Wrestling Challenge. Hot dog wrappers and other trash bounced off the Garden's infamous parquet floor as angry New Englanders balked at the illegitimate title change. Television cameras focused in on the mysterious foreign object resting by the ring announcer's position to further drive home the point. From a booking perspective, Winning the important mid-card title was a sensible elevation for Savage's heel character. Since his debut in the summer of 1985, he was presented as a high-profile free agent signing. Now that valuable free agent had gold around his waist to prove those proclamations true. The Macho Man, Randy Savage, Intercontinental Champion of the World. Talking about history, talking about history. One date, uh, yeah, just in my mind, February the 8th in Boston, Massachusetts at the Boston Garden, yeah, where Larry Bird plays basketball, yeah, and the Boston Celtics are a real tough team. But uh, I think that if I played basketball, man, the way I am and the super athlete that I am, I would overshadow Larry Bird. Because on that particular night in Boston, I was the greatest professional wrestler in the world. Oh, proud. Yeah, I'm proud. In macho madness, yeah. Growing, 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 and more seductive than sex. You can't say that on TV. I can say that. I can say that I'm the intercontinental heavyweight champion of the world. Even before he won intercontinental gold, Savage had the look and feel of someone who was going to be important. He was someone set apart from the rest of the stars on McMahon's expanding roster. His look was uniquely catered toward a style all his own. He dressed in bold and often clashing colors, his dense biceps forced to squeeze out from under the skin-tight material. Thick patches of straightened hair shut out from beneath a headband or do-rag, and his trademark sunglasses covered his eyes whenever he wasn't in the ring. On the mic, his promo style was as unique as his look. He often spoke in a collection of thoughts, sometimes even single words at a time, rather than conventional sentences. But he wasn't absent-minded. Quite the contrary. He was deliberate. Methodical, even. He knew exactly what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it right down to the offbeat cadence and wild mannerisms that complemented his prose. In the ring, he moved with the grace of a wild stallion, but he had the intensity of a hungry tiger stalking its prey. He exhibited great balance and agility. He could chain wrestle and climb the ropes, but that technique was underlined with a dangerous intensity, and he unleashed that intensity on unsuspecting opponents at a moment's notice. That intensity in and out of the ring is what ultimately set him apart from everyone else. Other heels could project danger, but not like Randy Savage. He was like a lit stick of dynamite with a hidden fuse. You knew he was dangerous, 
but you didn't know where or when he would explode. Savage defined his dangerous aura as the madness. The heelish antithesis of Hulkamania, the madness was what drove him in the ring and framed each of his sinister motivations. Sometimes he referred to the madness like a sickness, something that was beyond his control. Other times he described it as a mindset, almost a conscious decision to live life on the edge of a lightning bolt. Whatever the madness was, it consumed Randy Savage entirely. After his debut, a collection of heel managers made an effort to align themselves with Savage. Like a noteworthy high school athlete being welcomed by college coaches, Savage was a blue-chip recruit. In this case, the WWF's heel managers took the place of head coaches. Bobby Heenan, Mr. Fuji, Jimmy Hart, Freddie Blassie, Johnny Valiant, they all met Savage in the ring after a match for a chance to win the exclusive rights to the Macho Man. But in the first in a long line of swerves that would become one of the defining characteristics of Savage's persona, the capricious heel threw a curveball to the promotion's heel establishment and the audience. Oh yeah, everybody concentrate right now. This is the big day. This is the big day. And I want to thank all these managers right now for your consideration. Mr. Fuji, devious ways that you put in my mind will come to use. Bobby the Brain Heenan, what you've taught me, oh yeah, I'm going to use forever. Johnny Valiant, oh yeah, the training will be in effect for the rest of my life. The diamonds that Freddie Blassie has flashed in front of my eyes really makes me smile. And it's been fantastic for your consideration. And Jimmy Hart, the complete opposite, just freaked me out. But now, let the mystery be over. Macho madness at this peak right now. And we gotta know who the manager is gonna be of the future WWE World Heavyweight Champion. Right behind that door right now is the Macho Man's new manager. Everybody get ready. A big, big moment. And here she comes. Oh, uh, oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Who is this, a movie star? Who is this? My goodness. Take a look. What a surprise. I can't believe, look at this. What a beautiful woman. My goodness. She is absolutely gorgeous. Oh my. Look at the smile. That is a gorgeous, gorgeous lady. My goodness, that is Jimmy Hart holding the ropes. The Macho Man said no. I can't believe that. Take a look at this. The Macho Man. 
introducing the managers to his current manager. Oh, I don't know what in the world. We're going to have to find out a lot more about this lady. She must be something to have, uh, in some fashion, cajoled the macho man into accepting her as a manager. Oh, she's beautiful, but to me it's still a mystery. Who is she? I don't know. I don't have the slightest idea. The mystery woman would soon be identified as Miss Elizabeth, Savage's real wife off-screen. Elizabeth proved to be the proverbial cherry on top of the Macho Man's unique persona. She was the WWF's only female manager at the time, which automatically made her special. But more than that, it was that stark contrast between the two characters that helped develop Randy Savage into a top-tier star. Savage was a mean-spirited, egotistical bully, an unremitting villain. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was humble and naturally likable. Savage was unpredictable and eccentric. Elizabeth was soft-spoken and elegant. Savage was a brute, physically intimidating to look at. Elizabeth was petite, with an understated sex appeal. This jarring juxtaposition added another important dimension to Savage's dangerous intensity, extreme jealousy and manic paranoia. The jealousy was exhibited any time Savage believed Elizabeth to outshine his star power with the audience. The paranoia came into play when anyone, absolutely anyone, tried to talk to Elizabeth for any reason. Like the worst kind of overbearing boyfriend, Savage treated Elizabeth as if she was his personal property rather than his equal. This unreasonable sense of control carried right down to the WWF's consummate stickman, Mean Gene Okerlund. I was hoping to talk to Macho Man Randy Savage at this point in time, but oh, I see I've, I've got uh, I've got something even better, Elizabeth. Now you're the manager of the Macho Man or or Valley. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's a tremendous association there. And Randy has done so very well. You've got to be very proud of him. Oh, definitely, I'm very proud of him. He has skyrocketed to stardom here in the World Wrestling Federation, and I can tell you're happy just by the big smile on your mm -hmm. face. Do you actually? sit down and, and make arrangements for the macho man travel business arrangements sure i help out in any way that i can i see where is he by the way he'll this be week? right out in just a second i think he got an important phone call oh, right before i see we... well, oh well, yeah uh, macho man i was just in your absence i was talking to tell a... me what you were doing Gino. We, no we, problem I, at all man. honest to goodness i don't Elizabeth. suspect you of nothing especially trying to get one over on me i yeah. was because it couldn't be done. We were no talking more. business. Macho Man number one. Get used to it, man. I'm the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion of the World. Elizabeth, look into the videoscope right there. Yes. Look into the videoscope and see how proud you are to be the manager of the Macho Man. I am proud to be the manager of the Macho Man. Want to ask her a question? You've told me I can't talk to her, Randy. I've told you that from time to time. Yes, I have. Would you like to ask her a question right at this particular time? Would you like to do that? May, may I? Oh, yeah. What kind of a question do you want to ask her? Well, hey, Elizabeth. You wouldn't give her that flower, would you? Oh. If you did that, you know what would happen? Yeah, I've got a good idea. You know what would happen if Okerlund gave a flower to Elizabeth? Elizabeth, you know what would happen. 
But don't, now don't get her in the middle of this. She doesn't. Man, I think that your time is done. And I think that the spotlight should go on top of me. Yeah. Savage's paranoia and jealousy over Liz served as the backdrop for a lengthy feud with George the Animal Steel for much of 1986 and into 1987. Steel, a former monster heel character during the height of Bruno Sammartino's run as champion, had transformed into a lovable dunce character more in line with Vince McMahon's vision of wrestling in the 1980s. The animal, as it turned out, had a crush on Elizabeth. Drawing inspiration from Tarzan and Jane, the animal's focus strayed from in-ring competition as it became fixated on the beautiful Liz. This, of course, was enough to send Savage over the deep end. The two battled over the Intercontinental title twice in 1986, first on a January episode of Saturday Night's main event, and then again at WrestleMania II. Savage ultimately retained his title against the animal, as well as other opponents over the course of nine months. But then, in November of 1986, the biggest threat to his title became clear. A new babyface character would emerge, one that posed much more of an imminent threat than the lovable animal character. One that would box Savage into a corner and bring out the macho madness in a way nobody could have predicted. Gene Okerlund here on location at the Temple of Ching Lao with Rick the Dragon Steamboat. Ricky Steamboat, it is right here on these premises where you and others have gone through and will go through intense training in preparation for not only professional wrestling, but for life itself. That's true, Gene. Many hours, many days, many weeks rolled into months, 28 months to be exact. Mind and body as one, physical and mental preparation in the martial arts. And certainly, Ricky Steamboat, it has prepared you, as I've said before, for the World Wrestling Federation. Let's journey through the Temple of Ching Lao for the three true tests of Ricky Steamboat. All right, Rick the Dragon Steamboat, we are on the Bridge of Serenity, and I can see this is tremendously serene with the, the beautiful foliage, the gorgeous flowers. It is absolutely breathtaking. It is quite a scene indeed. Gene, it was not always so serene. When it was here, I took my first test. A lot of years of training, a lot of instinctive years of training, which have taught me the many times that I've had to do battles. The instinct is where it comes in, of being able to fight your foe to and from yourself. Here we are, Ricky Steamboat, in the Garden of Tranquility. A gorgeous environment, no question about that. It is here where the monks put you through a very rigorous uh, mental and physical training to prepare you for the life ahead of you. That's very true, Gene. Mental preparedness, physical preparedness, but also the awareness of the martial art weapons. This is what the monks wanted. This is where I went through my second true test. Rick the Dragon Steamboat, the mental and physical discipline had to be unbelievable, as it still is. Your first test on the, on the Bridge of Serenity. And even now, as we leave this garden, that test of the past here in the Garden of Tranquility. And now, your third test, the one that took place in the Temple of Cheng Lao. The third test in the Temple of Cheng Lao was the most strenuous test of all. In front of the monks, in person, I had to prove myself once again. I had to prove myself to be awarded this jacket. 
and black belt. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat made his World Wrestling Federation debut in January of 1985. Like Savage, he was plucked from the territory scene to populate McMahon's growing empire. Steamboat was a big name, arguably a bigger name than Savage in 1985. He entered the WWF with impeccable babyface credentials. He'd spent the better part of eight years working for Jim Crockett Promotions, where he was firmly planted on the babyface side of the ledger. He was a decorated tag team champion with multiple partners, and he also held the NWA United States title on multiple occasions. The U.S. title was an important singles title in the NWA, often the main event attraction while the traveling heavyweight champion was touring elsewhere. Steamboat more than held his own at that level. His in-ring work was almost unmatched. Outside the ring, he was naturally likable. He was soft-spoken and respectful, but also a fiery and determined competitor. He was the perfect representation of what a white meat babyface looked and sounded like in the 1980s. When Steamboat signed with the WWF, he was immediately reimagined with a gimmick to enhance his personality. He was presented as a martial arts expert in the image of Bruce Lee. Though elements of the gimmick came with a certain level of camp, Steamboat played the role straight. He took the role seriously, and because he did, the character came across as larger than life without extending too far over the top. The Tuesday Night Titans segment that followed Steamboat's journey to earn his black belt at the Temple of Chen Lao perfectly encapsulated the gimmick. Fighting would-be ninjas in essentially black pajamas was certainly far-fetched, but Steamboat's reserved promos pulled the whole thing together in a way few others could do with any level of credibility. Steamboat's first significant feud in the WWF came against Jake the Snake Roberts in 1986. A real injury proved to be the catalyst for the rivalry. Steamboat was knocked unconscious after taking a DDT outside the ring. A serious concussion and facial swelling forced him off the road to heal. The situation, while unfortunate, provided a ready-made storyline. The WWF regularly updated the audience on Steamboat's condition, as Roberts bragged about the attack to keep the heat smoldering. When it was safe for Steamboat to return, he wanted revenge. The two battled at The Big Event, one of the WWF's earliest pay-per-views held in Toronto, Canada in August. In October, the feud culminated on Saturday night's main event, with Steamboat standing tall. The popularity of the feud did not go unnoticed. The story of Steamboat returning from a serious injury to extract justice on the man who injured him was simple but compelling. Like his time in Crockett, Steamboat created a strong bond with the WWF audience. His abilities in the ring went a long way in helping cultivate that important relationship. A combination of impressive martial arts and technical wrestling ability made him somewhat of a hybrid. His infectious smile and genuine affection toward the crowd made him almost impossible to dislike. He was a good guy, an honest sportsman, and he competed with honor. The botched DDT on the concrete floor left Steamboat with two black eyes and a swollen face. It was a startling visual. But he came back. He came back and put the heel in his place. And in doing so, Steamboat proved that he could cross that important threshold of no return and come out on the other side better for it. That critical psychology inspired by the tenets of the hero's journey instantly elevated his star power. With his stock on the rise, 
Steamboat was elevated to the next tier on the card. This put him directly in line for an Intercontinental title shot. It was November 22, 1986, when Steamboat first shared the ring with Randy Savage on an episode of Superstars of Wrestling. It was his first chance at winning a singles title since joining the promotion. Title matches were not yet routine on WWF television in 1986, so when they did occur, it was a big deal. Nine months after defeating Tito Santana, Savage proved more desperate to maintain his championship status with every title defense. As two of the more gifted athletes under the WWF banner stood eye to eye in the ring, something felt different. A noticeable buzz was in the air inside Broome County Arena in Biggington, New York. The type of organic buzz that builds when the audience senses something important is about to take place. This wouldn't be another routine match. They could feel it. The two fought furiously, each man attempting to control the style and tempo of the championship clash. Steamboat maintained a quick pace and used his unique style to keep the champion on the defensive. Savage fought furiously to subdue the challenger with the type of underhanded tactics that served him so well in the past. But this match was different. Every shortcut Savage took was cut off by Steamboat. The determined babyface stayed one step ahead of the heel at every turn. As the match built to its crescendo, it became obvious that Steamboat would not be denied. Many fans around the ringside area stood to their feet as they sent Steamboat closing in on the important title win. And then, at the most inopportune time, referee Dave Hebner got caught in the middle of the action and went down. Savage used the incident to redirect the action to the outside, where he was safe from losing the title. That's when he let loose the madness. Savage dropped Steamboat across the steel guardrail throat first. Steamboat immediately held his hands to his throat as if he were choking. Any semblance of an honest wrestling match quickly went out the window. It was a full-blown attack. With the referee back on his feet, he began the customary 10 count. Steamboat was unable to return to the ring before Hebner reached 10, and Savage was declared the winner by countout. But winning the match wasn't enough. Savage had just survived the most serious threat to his title since becoming champion. He wasn't leaving New York until he was sure that threat couldn't come back to haunt him down the road. With Steamboat in serious distress, Savage ascended the top turnbuckle with the ring bell in hand. With a cruel smile on his face, he honed in on his vulnerable target rolling around the ring and dropped down with vicious force. The wooden plank attached to the ring bell was forced directly into Steamboat's already injured throat. Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura described the alarming scene from ringside, as doctors and medical staff came running into the ring to assist Steamboat. 
McMahon even suggested that Steamboat may have inadvertently swallowed his own tongue as a result of the cowardly attack. What began as an exciting title match had evolved into a dastardly attack in almost a moment's notice. All right, let's go back and see some of these actions here by the Macho Man Savage up on the top rope. And look at this, Jesse. Well, I'll tell you, McMahon, I've never seen this move done before. Look at the length of that leap coming down. That's where catching Steamboat. How to swallow his tongue, right? No, no, it's... Nah, his tongue ain't swallowed. It's sticking out right there. But he can't breathe. And in from there, look at this. Wham! Right into the throat. Again, right into the throat. What's he trying to do? Well, it's obviously what he's trying to do. He's eliminating Ricky the Dragon Steamboat as the number one contender. That man should be barred. That man should be eliminated in his own right. Look at this. Well, I'll tell you all I could say, very aggressive on the part of Savage. Here you see Steamboat being carried, literally carried from the ring. Yeah, but from there, the man is gasping for breath. He, 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 just, he just rides right off the stretcher. Look at it, right on down. Still just gasping for breath. He can't breathe. Do you know what it's like not to be able to breathe? Well, all I could say, it's incompetency on the part of those paramedics there. Don't you agree? The indignity suffered by Steamboat still clutching his throat. On his way back now to receive medical attention, this man was hurt and hurt severely. Savage's heinous attack drew the ire of the living legend himself, Bruno Sammartino, who served as an announcer at the time. Sammartino was providing a backstage update on Steamboat's condition when he was approached by Savage, still high on the adrenaline rush from his actions. Though retired, Sammartino's supreme hero instincts kicked in, and he attacked Savage to defend the honor of the fallen babyface. Bruno, if you can hear us, if you give us that report, we'd appreciate it. There's nothing really new to report. Ricky Steamboat has been taken to the hospital by ambulance. He, he was in agony. His breathing is terrible, even though he had this tube down his throat. All of his friends were back here. We're waiting for further news, further report. It, it, it was one of the most devastating things I've ever seen. No excuse in the world for it. There was no reason by this slime, the so-called champion. Oh, 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 yeah, what's the update? Tell me, man. Are you happy about it? Send the hot dog to the hospital yet, huh? Did he put some mustard on him right now, get him all set up for the champion right there? I'm so proud of myself! You I'm piece of slime, you're happy The backstage scuffle precipitated San Martino's return to the ring for yet another swan song years after his formal retirement. The special attraction of Bruno in the ring replaced Steamboat's position on the road. It had to. Like the angle with Jake Roberts, Steamboat was forced out of action after the violent assault. Only this time, it was planned that way. With Steamboat's injuries purely kayfabe this time around, the severity of the situation was enhanced to add to the drama of the story. In the days after the attack, it was reported that Steamboat suffered a crushed larynx. Rendered unable to communicate, 
he struggled through therapy and medical treatment. Speculation about the future of Steamboat's career began to surface after an interview with his wife highlighted the dire situation. Savage, for his part, reveled in his heelish achievement. He mocked Steamboat's inability to speak, and even suggested the star learn sign language and quietly retire. He bragged about how he put down the promising challenger to the Intercontinental title and threatened to do far worse to anyone who dared challenge him for the title in the future. Complete mental insanity. Oh, yeah. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, your future seems bleak. Oh, yeah, it does. But you got involved over your head, didn't you? The Macho Man Randy Savage, number one wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation. Take your wife's advice. Retire. Understand. Understand that you're learning sign language now. Understand you're trying to talk. Communicate. Two more signs that maybe you can add to your repertoire. Number one could be possibly this, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Yeah, your future. And then possibly that if you ever decide to come back and wrestle the Macho Man Randy Savage. Because Steamboat couldn't speak, there was no inspiring bedside promos promising a quick return. No proclamations of forthcoming revenge. Instead, produced TV segments tracked Steamboat's recovery through interviews with medical staff treating the dragon. Doctors provided sobering updates for weeks, challenging the idea of a return and fearing for Steamboat's safety if he were to ever return to the ring again. As the calendar turned to January of 1987, further elements of melodrama were inserted into the story. Fans tuning into WWF's weekly television watched Steamboat suffer through speech therapy sessions as he struggled to make basic sounds or put small words together without intense pain. What the segments lacked in artful drama, they more than made up for with a compelling road of trials, an important element in any hero's journey. The message was clear. A fire was burning deep inside Ricky Steamboat. He wasn't ready to just retire. He wasn't ready to succumb to the treachery of the madness, a fact that Steamboat's doctors relayed to the audience in his absence. With me, once again, Dr. Bob Ponovich, who is the chief physician for the World Wrestling Federation. I am looking, doctor, for a status, a physical status report on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. What is the latest? Gene, I'm amazed at the man's recuperative abilities. He's had an amazing recovery at this point from his uh, initial injuries. I think a lot of that is due to the tremendous heart of Ricky Steamboat and, and certainly the phenomenal physical condition that he is in. I'm, I'm absolutely uh, sure of that fact. I think he's in such good condition that he had this re remarkable re recovery because of that fact. Now, Ricky Steamboat has vowed to return to the ring, and I'm very curious, Doctor, what would the possible consequences be if he should ever be struck in that area of the throat of the larynx? I worry about that, Gene. I think that that area has been weakened, and I think another blow to that area could be very disastrous to his uh, career, and perhaps even fatal. On the January 3rd episode of Saturday Night's Main Event, Savage defended the Intercontinental title against a familiar foe, George the Animal Steel. As the match progressed, the madness took front and center yet again. Uninterested in simply winning the match, Savage grabbed the bell from ringside once again and ascended the top rope with bad intentions. But before he could deliver the violent encore to the events of 1986, Steamboat came running out to the ring to put a stop to the disgusting scene. Ricky Steamboat was back, perhaps against better judgment and most certainly against doctor's orders, 
but he was back. He could no longer contain the fire burning within him. He had to act. Savage was incredulous. His eyes were wide as golf balls as he stood in shock at the sight before him. He couldn't believe the fiery baby face before him was the same man he'd taken out months before. His worst nightmare had come true. The one man capable of dethroning him as Intercontinental Champion was now in position to receive another title shot. Only this time, it wouldn't be in Binghamton, New York. It wouldn't be on an episode of Superstars of Wrestling. The next time the two rivals shared the ring, it would be on the grandest stage in all of pro wrestling. WrestleMania. It's official. After receiving invitational bids from Wembley Stadium in London, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, Madison Square Garden in New York City, World Wrestling Federation officials have announced that WrestleMania 3 will be held at the beautiful Silver Dome in Pontiac, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. The date, Sunday afternoon, March the 29th. I remember the excitement of WrestleMania 1 from Madison Square Garden. Then last year's extravaganza originating from New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Now, with an event the magnitude of WrestleMania 3, it's the Silver Dome. I've been in the Silver Dome many times, and I can assure you that every seat is a great seat. The Silver Dome will accommodate over 90,000 people for WrestleMania 3. I'm also confident that a new world indoor attendance record will be set on Sunday afternoon, March the 29th. We just can't imagine anybody missing this the biggest of all wrestling spectaculars. The ring almost disappeared into the sea of humanity inside the Pontiac Silverdome. It was a scene unlike any pro wrestling event before it. One of the largest arenas in the country was jam-packed with vociferous wrestling fans, right up to the signature fiberglass dome. The bright Michigan sun shined through the unique roof held in place by air pressure as the matches got underway. One by one, the stories played out inside the squared circle as Vince McMahon's vision for the future inched closer to its apex. The crowd roared with each dramatic entrance, cheered as the heroes stood tall and booed the hated villains trying to sour the special day. When the sun began to set beneath the early spring horizon, the energy persisted. As day turned to night, the massive crowd turned into a blackened wave of forceful sound. That's when it was time for the Intercontinental title match. When news of the rematch was first made public, it was announced that George the Animal Steel would be in the Dragon's Corner. Steamboat saved the animal from certain doom, and so in return, the lovable animal would watch Steamboat's back. Savage had humiliated the animal and maimed Steamboat all in the name of preserving his title. Now the stage was set for the Macho Man to receive the comeuppance he deserved. But Savage wasn't about to lay down without a fight. He'd been backed into a corner before, and he responded by unleashing the madness in a most vicious manner. He coveted the Intercontinental title and the status it provided him. Steamboat would have to raise his game to another level if he wanted to leave Michigan with the title. Pro wrestling is often a tale of two stories. The story that establishes the stakes before a match and the story within the match itself. How those stories interrelate is critically important in creating compelling drama. As the time to enter the ring drew near, Savage and Steamboat took one last opportunity to put a bow on the story outside the ring before the incredible story in the ring took over. Ooh, yeah. 
Macho Man, Randy Savage, Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, was in a state of shock when Ricky the Dragon Steamboat came back, yeah. But this time, in front of the largest audience in the world, I will not only embarrass you, not only pin you with the one, two, three count, but I'm going to put you out of wrestling for good. Oh, yeah, Dragon. I am the Lord and Master of the Ring, and you're going to find that out one athlete to another right now. You can't be with me, no. History beckons the Macho Man, yeah. All right, Ricky the yeah. Dragon, Steamboat, someone special. George, the animal steel in your corner. However, in my opinion, this could be your last shot at Randy Savage and the Intercontinental title. My last opportunity. Randy Savage, the day has finally come. The minutes, the seconds, we have reached our moment. As you and I climb into the ring, we clash like two titans. But there will only be one winner. One winner, Savage. This dragon will scorch your back. I will come away with the championship belt and see new horizon. The two rivals anxiously circled one another as the highly anticipated match was finally in the ring. When they locked up, it was as if they picked up right where they left off back in November. The match that followed would become an instant classic, something that didn't just excite the fans, took the industry by storm. The two spectacular athletes remained in a constant state of motion for nearly 15 minutes. 15 minutes, a relatively short period of time. That's all it took for Savage and Steamboat to reimagine what a pro wrestling match could look like. The match structure was deliberate and focused. The execution, pinpoint and accuracy. Savage and Steamboat broke the very laws of time, making 15 minutes fly by and last an eternity at the exact same time. There were no death-defying high spots, no spectacular feats of strength or superhuman power. None of that was necessary. The story that placed the rivals in the ring that night successfully convinced the audience to invest. The tens of thousands inside the Silverdome and the hundreds of thousands watching at home were already all in. They knew the players, they knew the stakes, and they knew the outcome they wanted to see. Savage and Steamboat exploited that very psychology in those 15 minutes of wrestling action. It was supposed to be Savage's great comeuppance, Steamboat's glorious moment in the spotlight. Instead, the two wily performers routinely knocked the audience off balance, playing the fans against their very expectations and giving them one thing after another they didn't expect. Early in the match, for instance, Steamboat was clotheslined over the top, but he hung onto the top rope and swung himself back into the ring was a spot the audience had seen before. The overconfident heel brags to the audience as Steamboat quietly turns the table behind his back before catching the heel off guard and making him pay. This time around, Steamboat swung back into the ring as Savage jousted with the audience. But as he closed in behind Savage, the Macho Man quickly turned and threw another clothesline that set the dragon back over the top, this time spilling out onto the floor. It was a subtle message, but the psychology behind it was effective. This was not going to be a run-of-the-mill match. That sense of unpredictability, even if it was on a subconscious level, added a new dynamic to the match beyond the theme of revenge or the stakes of the Intercontinental title hanging in the balance. When the audience loses that sense of control, when fans lose that familiar rhythm and cadence of a match, they lose that helpful compass that guides them from bell to bell. Savage and Steamboat forcefully remove that compass, and the fans, in turn, bid on each and every high spot the two seasoned pros threw at them, hook, line, and sinker. 
With every startling near fall, 18 to be precise, that sense of unpredictability continued to grow and grow and grow. What began as a simple pro wrestling story, heel attacks babyface, babyface makes brave return, heel falls in convincing defeat. That creative architecture was gone. Each well-placed false finish built the tension more and more. With some near falls coming in quick succession, the audience didn't even have time to react to one before the next one altered the possible outcome. On more than one occasion, thousands of fans in the upper bowl shouted in excitement thinking the match was over, only to be brought back down to the tense reality that Savage was still the champion and the match was still very much in doubt. I don't know how. I mean, he has given him three or four moves right now that were to beat any average man. This is beyond wrestling ability. This is guts personified right now. Macho Man trying to get to the outside to save himself. He's in a lot of trouble. The title is in a lot of trouble. I'll tell you now, it's the Macho Man with unbelievable how he's kicking out all these. What a battle. This is one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. Small package right in the middle. No, Macho Man That tension reached its peak when referee Dave Hebner got caught in the crosshairs and went down. The temporary loss of the referee was what originally allowed Savage to execute his vicious assault on Steamboat back in November. Now, with the stakes even higher, Savage was in position to take advantage yet again. With Steamboat and the referee incapacitated, Savage climbed to the top turnbuckle, where he measured his challenger and dropped his patented elbow drop. The Macho Man didn't miss. He connected his trademark finisher with precision and covered Steamboat. But the referee was still out. In an ironic twist, Savage now found himself a victim of a match with no referee. Steamboat was saved by karma. With each failed attempt to put Steamboat away, Savage became more desperate, more consumed by the madness. Enough was enough. He was going to end the match and end Steamboat's career once and for all, just like he promised. Furious he was locked in such a bitterly contested fight, Savage rolled to the outside and grabbed the ring bell the same ring bell he'd used to crush Steamboat's larynx in November. If he couldn't beat Steamboat clean, then he'd cross that line once more and take matters into his own hands. But unlike in November, Steamboat now had someone watching his back. As Savage once again scaled the top rope with the ring bell in hand, George the Animal Steel leapt up onto the ring apron and shoved the Macho Man clean off the turnbuckle. Savage struggled to regain himself as he bounced off the canvas and the ring bell bounced harmlessly across the ring. Desperate to maintain the slim control he had on the match, Savage swiftly grabbed Steamboat and hoisted him up for a body slam. But Steamboat used Savage's momentum against him and rolled through the slam attempt into a small package cradle. Hebner, himself exhausted from the many near falls and the inadvertent contact, slid down as fast as he could and counted the one, two, three. In that moment, the fans inside the Silverdome collectively let loose the bated breath they'd been nervously holding throughout the match. Steamboat had done it. He'd avenged the brutal attack. He'd avenged all of the Macho Man's callous actions against him, the animal, and others, right down to the foreign object he spiked Tito Santana with to originally win the title 13 months before. Justice had finally been served in the form of a fire that burned deep within Steamboat's soul a fire that refused to let the beloved hero give up, even in the face of great adversity. And Hebner just now making it to his feet, and Savage has got the belt back. Give me a break. Look at that. Oh, great interference. The animal. 
him right off. I think the bell rammed Savage in the head, Jess. But the champion still in control. Now a small package by the Dragon. Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat entered the Silverdome determined to steal the show. After months of crafty storytelling and careful planning, they did just that. The match added yet another level of prestige to the Intercontinental title, one that would continue to build. The title became associated with some of the greatest workers to step inside a WWF ring, an important gateway to superstardom and the heavyweight title. Perhaps no other match can be credited with as much influence as Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat at WrestleMania 3. It broke the glass ceiling of the mid-card, and it changed the way undercard performers were expected to compete. It highlighted the power of the creative synergy of storytelling in and out of the ring, and it brought in-ring psychology to another level. The match remains, in a single word, timeless. It survived the test of some 30 plus years, and as each new generation is introduced to the exciting masterpiece, it remains a pillar of wrestling art that continues to excite the audience just as it first did on that fateful night inside the Silverdome.